I am so happy to be able to say these words. Can you open your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 4? We're going to get back to the text today. Revelation chat well actually let's let's pray first. Father, thank you again for the gift of your word and for your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you have revealed so much to us. Um, where would we be if if you did not tell us about yourself, if you did not reveal truth to our corrupted minds, uh, that we can understand, have an inkling as to who you are, who we are and to, to know what we need to know about you, about your truth, about your law, and about your, you know, all of your characteristics, your, your holiness, your wrath, your, your justice, your mercy, your love, your compassion, your grace. All of those are, are equally beautiful in you. And so we thank you as we come back now to begin to see the things that are going to happen after these things and get an idea as to how you're going to bring history to a close and how you're going to accomplish all of your purposes. Thank you that you are God. No one can thwart your will. No one can turn aside your desires. You are the one who is the sovereign ruler of everything. And we worship you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have looked at uh, the things that John has seen. You remember that John was brought up uh, into heaven. He was commanded to write and he was to, to record the things that had been seen, then the things that are, and then the things that will happen after these things. And chapter four inaugurates that third group, that third um, part of, of what John is going to be uh, recording, what he sees. And remember again that John is being a faithful recorder. He's not interpreting what he sees. He is recording what he sees. And that's an important thing for us. We're also going to run into this morning uh, something that, frankly, we have run into before, where it will be, uh, if there is a symbol, then often the meaning of that symbol is actually given to John so that he would be able to pass that along to us. Because remember, the idea behind Revelation is what? Is it to conceal truth or is it to reveal truth? It's to reveal truth. And so... That is what we need to be looking for, is what is God revealing about people? What is God revealing about his plans? What is God revealing about what is true? And so we have looked at the message to the churches. Um, how did you find looking at the letters to the churches? I'm just curious. Was that something that was, you know, when you look at that, it's, wow, the church is in really great shape. They're making such huge strides in, in, in John's time in the first century. Did anybody come away with that idea? Yeah, it's a little disheartening, isn't it? Five out of seven. God says, I have a bone to pick with you. Many of them, you're doing this well, but you're faltering in this area and you need to repent or there's going to be consequences. And the two churches of which he didn't have any criticism at all were churches where they and suffering were close comrades, right? And so... He comes to the end of chapter 3, and we've had a few weeks where we've looked at the idea of the rapture. We've looked at the idea of uh, views of the rapture, views of the tribulation, and views of the millennial kingdom. 
And so we're going to begin now with chapter 4 and getting back in. And chapters 4 and 5 are a prelude. And John is called back up into heaven. In fact, let's just go ahead and read both. We're only going to deal with chapter 4 today. Let's go ahead and read both. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. The third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, 
be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. <laughs> I don't know what you think about when you read that. We're going to be there. We are going to be part of that throng because of the Son of God, because of the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. And so, as we move in here, we're just going to look at chapter 4 today. John is, we have a break. John has a personal marker. So he, is, he has recorded chapter 1. He has written, he's uh, been the secretary for Jesus in writing out the letters to the seven churches. And now after these things, so that is done. Now after that, he has this vision and this experience. And so after these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. The door is already open. He doesn't see it opened. The door is standing open. And a voice calls to him, come up here. Now, there are some who will say this is a picture of the rapture. And that is probably stretching a little bit, honestly. I don't know that there's a biblical basis for that because John is not physically translated. He's in the spirit. And he goes up and he sees these things. And it's, it's one of these things where um, Paul had, had a similar experience, right? He is taken up into the third heaven, whether in the body or whether out of the body, God knows. And he sees things that it's not lawful for a man to talk about. Ezekiel was caught away when he was with the exiles at the, by the river Kabar in Babylon. And he is taken in the spirit and he's taken to Jerusalem. He's taken up into heaven. We're going to go to Ezekiel here in a minute because we're going to see that many of the things that John is seeing are very similar to things that Ezekiel saw and recorded. They're similar to things that Daniel saw and recorded. They're similar things to what Micah saw and recorded. And so, and Isaiah and what Isaiah wrote down. And so when we look at this, we're going to be able to see some similarities. There are some differences, but there are many similarities between what John is seeing and what these previous men have seen and recorded for us. And so he goes. So let's flip back. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 1. Now, we've already read Revelation 4, right? And we've got lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. We've got a throne. We have the appearance of a rainbow around the throne. We've got a sea of glass like crystal around the throne that John sees in his trip, in his visit to heaven, okay? Now, let's go back to Ezekiel now. Again, when is Ezekiel happening? When did Ezekiel live? Okay, he's, he's with the exiles. Ezekiel is exiled. He goes out in 597 BC. So this is about 700 years before John. Okay? Ezekiel 1, and this is, again, Ezekiel 1, we're going to run into the wheels. Now it came about in the 30th year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Kabar among the exiles, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's exile, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kabar, and there the hand of the Lord came upon him. As I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually and a bright light around it, and in its midst something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. 
Within it were figures resembling four living beings. And this was their appearance. They had human form. Each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight and their feet were like a calf's hoof and they gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides were human hands. As for the faces and wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. Their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. As for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man. All four had the face of a lion on the right and the face of a bull on the left. And all four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Each had two touching another being and two covering their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit was about to go, they would go without turning as they went. In the midst of the living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. The fire was bright and lightning was flashing from the fire. And the living beings ran to and fro like bolts of lightning. We'll skip the wheels. Go down to verse 22. Now over the heads of the living beings, there was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads. Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward, each other, one toward the other. Each one also had two wings covering its body on the one side and the other. I also heard the sound of their wings like the sound of abundant waters as they went, like the voice of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army camp. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. And there came a voice from above, from above the expanse that was over their heads. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. Now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upwards something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward I saw something like fire. And there was radiance about him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. Now flip over to chapter 10 in Ezekiel. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold... In the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, something like a sapphire stone in appearance resembling a throne appeared above them. And he spoke to the man clothed in linen and said, Enter between the whirling wheels under the cherubim and fill your hands with coals of fire from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. Skip down to verse 20. These are the living beings that I saw beneath the God of Israel by the river Kabar. So I knew that they were cherubim. Each one had four faces and each one four wings, and beneath their wings was the form of human hands. As for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the river Kabar. Each one went straight ahead. So here we have these four beings, which are identified to Ezekiel as cherubim. So cherubim are what? First of all, what is, what is cherubim? It's a plural. So it's a plural of cherub. What is a cherub? A cherub is an angel. It's a special kind of an angel. And so here you have these angels that are in God's presence, in God's throne room, so to speak, and they are the ones who are identified as praising God continually, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. We see the expanse. We see the throne. We see an appearance of one on the throne. 
the description of the cherubim is a little different than in John. So how, what does Ezekiel see with these cherubim that John does not? Okay, multiple faces. Ezekiel sees four faces on each cherub. John sees one. How many wings do Ezekiel's cherub, cherubim have? Ezekiel's have four. How many wings are on the cherubim in the vision that John has? There are six. So are there some differences? Yeah, there are some differences. How do you resolve differences like that? Are they seeing the same thing? Sounds very similar. All right, let's fast forward to something. Have you ever looked at the descriptions of what was inscribed on the sign that was placed above the cross during the crucifixion? Now, how many accounts would there be of what that might have read? Four Gospels, right? Are any of them identical? They're not. None of them are identical. So what does that mean? Okay, they're different people seeing the same event and they're coming away with something different than the others. Matt. Okay, so the question is, could it be that the early translators uh, translated it differently? I don't think so. I don't think so. The idea is, and, and by the way, um, anybody who works in law enforcement would be very familiar with this phenomenon. Different people witnessing the very same event can have very different observations and perceptions. I've run into that myself, uh, where I was in the middle of an event and there were certain things that I observed, other things I did not. I wasn't looking for them. I was looking for something else, Gunnar. Right. And so again, so what they're doing is, when you look, and, and again, let's just stay with the, with the inscription on the cross. So what do you get when you look at the four accounts of that inscription? You get the totality of it. One saw this, and this is what stuck with him. Another saw this, and this is what stuck with him. And this, and so when you put them together, you get a whole, okay? They're not inconsistencies. No different, and by the way, anybody who's married gets this, right? You both witness the same event, and yet you talk to the husband, you talk to the wife, and you can get very different relations of what took place. Emery? Yeah, and, it, and, and sometimes it's not even that you're not paying attention. It's that you're focused on an aspect, and that is what grabs you from that. And so here you have, we've got four cherubim, 
that are in the presence of God. We have enough similarity to see that, you know, these guys are looking at the same thing. They're seeing things slightly differently. There's another thing to take into play here, and again, and, and this is because when God is recording these things for us, hang on one sec, when God is recording these things for us, he is wanting to communicate, and he's making sure that what we need to know gets in where he wants it. And so it's not just that we're limited to what each of these men saw and what they recorded. It may also be that God is trying to communicate something specific through them for that audience, okay? And so that, there's that other aspect that needs to be brought in here. Jim, uh, Jeff. Okay, very good question. So the question is, when you have these discrepancies, how does that affect? How do you then communicate the, the idea of the inerrancy of Scripture? And the answer to that is that God is communicating specific things through specific people. Because people looked at it and uh, okay, uh, Oh, that's right. I have no idea where the cameras are. I have no idea if I'm going to go off camera. And frankly, I don't care. Okay. I am now standing here. And I'm looking at Sam from this side. That's right. He's got, I've got the profile there. If that's what I see of Sam, this is what I would know of Sam. Now... other side and I'm looking at him I can give the same I can give a rendition of him from both sides are those sides completely can they be completely accurate yes would they be completely total individually no they won't be and so here we have Ezekiel is king on certain things. Now, what is absent in Ezekiel's vision that is present in John's? Pardon me? Well, Ezekiel, um, Ezekiel talks about the eyes. It is in there. Where are the 24 thrones? Ezekiel doesn't see them. He makes no mention of any of that. They're present in John. They're not present in Ezekiel, which could be a couple of potential explanations for that. So script, going back to the idea of inerrancy of Scripture, inerrancy is meaning that what God communicated is true. And it is true in word. It is true in concept. Everything about it is true. If there is something that is different when we're talking about a, an observation, then that has nothing to do with the truthfulness of Scripture. This man saw something he recorded what he saw. This other man saw something, he recorded what he saw. If there's slight differences, perhaps there's a reason for the differences. Does that make sense? You, I'm sorry, go ahead. They're both correct in that they are both correctly recording what they saw and they're recording what it was that God wanted them to write. So does that mean that, you know, because one saw this and one saw this, that, you know, one must be wrong? No. 
That makes sense, Jeff? Any other thing? Any questions? Okay, good. We're getting some questions here. Andrew. Yes. Yes. Gunner. That is a good question, and we're going to get into that a little later. Because it, there's a question as to, well, who are these guys, right? Who are they? And that may help as to when they would show up in... Uh, when those thrones would show up. Flip over to go back a little to the left and go to Isaiah chapter 6. Very familiar passage. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Flip over to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7 will do verses 9 and 10. And by the way, this is in the middle of uh, one of Daniel's visions where he is seeing uh, these different beasts that are going to come later in history. Daniel 7, verse 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up. How many thrones? Don't know, but it's what? It's plural. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. His wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. And so here again, what do we have? You have a throne in heaven on which God sits. And by the way, when you have a throne that's, that's fixed, what, is that, what does that represent? What does that show? It, it's authority, it's permanent. You know, God's throne is permanent. It is forever. And it is absolute. And the idea of him seat, being seated on the throne would indicate what? When a king... Was, sit, was sitting on his throne. What was that a picture of? It was, it was a picture of his rule. He's on his throne. He is seated on the position of authority. And as such, as he is seated on the throne, he is sitting as ruler, as sovereign. And so here you have God, again, consistently being seen as he's on his throne, um, He's seated because he doesn't have to be standing. He, can, he, can, he rules, you know, with his word, right? 
He's able to accomplish everything with that. Last one, flip back to the left and go to 1 Kings chapter 22. Now here we encounter a prophet, Micaiah. And this, I believe, is pretty much the only time that we're going to run into Micaiah in Scripture. He is a faithful prophet. He is prophesying during the time of Ahab. Is Ahab a righteous king, by the way? No, he is not. We'll start in verse 13. Then the messenger who went to summon Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Behold now, the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. Please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. So in other words, Ahab has surrounded himself with a bunch of yes men. If you know what's good for you, you'll line up with what they're saying. Micaiah's not having any of it. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I shall speak. When he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered him, go up and succeed and the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Then the king said to him, how many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? That's kind of rich coming from Ahab. So he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master, let each of them return to his house in peace. Then the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? Verse 19, Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. And then he goes on to say how the Lord will send a, de a deceiving spirit on, onto Ahab. So here we have multiple examples, right, of God sitting on his throne. And then there's descriptions, and the descriptions vary somewhat. You have some where you have specific angels that are in a specific area around his throne. And then you've got a whole bunch of others that are around as well. So again, the question is, what do you take from those things? How do you correlate those things? And then how do we use those? Because here we see things that are being written hundreds of years earlier. And now here you have John who's coming in and he is seeing things that are very similar, not exact, but very similar to what has been seen back over here. So what do we take with all of that? Okay, seeing from different perspectives. God's on his throne being worshipped. Alan, I see the wheels turning. Okay. God wants us to know about this because it keeps coming up. Multiple men over centuries are seeing these things and God keeps bringing it up. So again, the idea that here you have God seated on his throne. Again, God's in control. He's not wigged out by circumstance. He doesn't have to stand up and, you know, use an outside voice in order to make something happen. He is in complete and utter control. And you have myriads of angels in his presence. That's why, you know, 
please don't get sucked into this Frank Peretti stuff. How, uh, you know, boy, if you're not praying, the angels are just withering away and, the, and then they can't overcome demons. Look, how many angels did Satan take with him? One third. Now, I was pretty good at math in school. One third means how, uh, if there's one third bad angels, then how many good angels are there? Two thirds. They outnumber the demons, okay? They got them two to one. This is not a problem, Gunner. <laughs> Salvation isn't offered to angels. Have you ever thought about that? When those angels fell, they're damned forever. He doesn't give help to angels, but he gives help to the son of Abraham. Can you imagine then, does that give you a little extra as to why angels long to look into the idea of redemption? Wow. This is something that God does for those guys, and those guys are wimps. God's throne is mentioned 11 times in chapter 4. It's something that God is, is wanting to communicate and to make sure that we understand. All right. There's some, there are some descriptions that are given. One is Jasper. And again, when we look at Jasper, uh, throughout Scripture, there are different shades um, this one here is uh, in Revelation 21.11. It's described as being crystal clear. And so some have taken this to be it's like a diamond. And so, and again, when you look at a diamond, what do diamonds do with light? Oh, it goes everywhere, right? And so again, it's dazzling. Sardius is ruby red. And yes, Sardis that we looked at uh, in the letters to the churches, this is where they got their name. They got their name from the, the, the red of Sardius. And then you have the rainbow around the throne. Now, let's talk about the rainbow for a moment. The, ra the rainbow has the appearance of an emerald, so apparently what, what color would be predominant in this? So you'd have green in this as, as the predominant color. What would be the significance of having a rainbow around God's throne. Okay, so where do rain, where'd the rainbow come from for us, for people on the earth here? Exactly. It is God's covenant with the earth after the flood that he would no more destroy the earth with a flood. And he set the bow in the cloud for that reason. So, the rainbow for us then is a reminder, right? That even in judgment, God is having mercy. That even in judgment, God has limits. And he is accomplishing exactly what he wants to accomplish with who in the idea of judgment. And so you have this, uh, but again, it is about judgment. That's, so when we come to this, there are two primary themes in chapters 4 and 5. One is the idea of impending judgment. This is the prelude. And the prelude is dominated by the second theme, which is worship. Have you ever considered that God's holiness and his wrath and his judgment are worthy of worship. See, we look at that. People tend to look at the idea of judgment and what caricature do they draw of God because of that. How is God perceived in the Old Testament? Oh, exactly. He's the mean God. He's the judgment. He's the uh, judgmental God. Whereas you get to the New Testament, and, and who is he then? 
He's Santa Claus, right? You can climb up on your you can climb up on his lap. So is God less than God because he's holy? And what does holiness mean? Okay, set apart from what? Everything else. It's a good way to put it. God can't tolerate sin. And because he cannot tolerate sin, something has to happen to sinners. They cannot be in his presence and live. So, somehow, God has to deal with that sin in such a way that his holiness, his justice, and his wrath are satisfied or we're simply all separated from him permanently forever. So when you hear, why doesn't God save everybody? What's the other way to look at that? Yeah, why does God save anyone at all? He didn't need us to begin with. He was perfectly satisfied and perfectly content in eternity past, before there was any such thing as an earth, before there was any such thing as people. He didn't need us. He wasn't somehow less than God before people existed. And when you look at redemption, who paid the price for redemption? Not us. He did. Jesus has the name that's above every name because he set aside that which was rightly his to be humiliated, to be tortured, to ultimately be separated from his father, to have the father turn his back on him in order to purchase for himself a people. In chapters 4 and 5, there are five hymns of praise. And they start off small. And they end big. So in music, this would be called a crescendo. So if you're musical, this is starting off with PPP. And it's ending with F, 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 all right? The initial hymn is a quartet. It's the four cherubim. And they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. That one triggers hymn number two. Now, hymn number two, now that's the four cherubim, and now you get 24 more coming in and joining this. And now they're together. In chapter 5, we're going to see that that triggers, uh, ultimately expands to where it's those 28, and they add instrumentation. So now you got the band. And you've got them, and then, oh, it's not going to stop there. Now, we're going to add in the backups. And that's going to be the rest of the angels that are there. And then ultimately, okay, that's not big enough. And you end up with every created thing joining in that hymn. And so, that's as big, I mean, are you going to get bigger than that? You can't. 
And, and what are they doing? They are worshiping God for who he is because his actions demonstrate who he is and what he is about. So we've got these 24 elders on thrones. Now there is a whole lot of discussion as to who these guys are. And you've got basically two choices with some subsets. One is that these 24 are angels. Now, there's some problems with the 24 being angels. Uh, they're refute, they're, they are referred to as presbyteroi, which is the word that we get elder from, one of the primary words that we get elder from. And never do you have that word used to describe an angel. Second, they are seated on thrones and nowhere else in scripture do you have angels seated on thrones. In fact, what is the main purpose of an angel? Messengers and, think Hebrews 1, are they not ministering spirits? Angels, you know, angels are kind of the ultimate deacons. They're ministers. They, they assist. They go through, they, they accomplish God's word. You see them a lot as messengers, right? Gabriel is sent to Mary. You have uh, angels being sent to Abraham. You have angels being sent to Manoah. You've got angels being sent to all kinds of different people in order to deliver a message from God, right? And they are all about, you know, going through and accomplishing God's work. Never do you see angels ruling. Because again, what is the concept of a throne? A throne is a, is, a, is, a, is a picture of authority, ruling. And so we don't see angels in that, in that way. Never is there an, an indication that angels get crowns. And again, and the word here for crown is Stephanos. So what was, and remember we talked about this when we were talking um, about the letters to the churches. What was the idea of the Stephanos? Who got one? The victor. That is the victor's crown. And the idea of being a victor is also, think about it now in terms of the letters to the churches. What would be another word for victor? He who overcomer, exactly. O who, who overcomes. What's the idea of overcoming? There's, there's, there's trouble. There's a trial, right? And this, one, this is the one who endures. This is the one who conquers. This is the one who stays faithful. You don't see that with angels. You just don't see that with them. So these guys aren't angels. So if they're not angels, then what would be the other general category of who they would be? They're people. They're men. So they're people. Now you get into these subgroups as to who they can be. And frankly, um, I don't know that we can be real conclusive. So could they be Old Testament saints? Could they be tribulation saints? Could they be church age saints? Well, yeah. It, that's where, again, I, it's, it's interesting that you don't see these thrones mentioned specifically by Ezekiel or Micaiah or Isaiah. They are referenced because you have multiple thrones in Daniel. Daniel is actually being, having explained to him the, uh, who these nations are, who these empires are, operating through history, culminating in what is going to be the tribulation period. So, 
again, commentators are split. I don't think we can be dogmatic one way or another. Um, if you are uh, premillennial, you would look at that and say, well, that's the church, and that's uh, saints from the church age reigning with Christ. Uh, and again, I don't think we can be dogmatic there. All right, questions? Matt? Let's just touch that on that right now. We have a few minutes. So, back to Revelation. We run into a symbol. It's a symbol. Have we seen this symbol before in this book? Okay, what do we, and so what did we run into in chapter 1? Let's go back to chapter 1. Now, in chapter 1, oh, I thought we had that here. We see seven churches. We see seven lampstands. We see seven stars. And the idea of the seven lampstands and the seven stars, who were those? The seven lampstands are the churches. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So we see this idea of seven is coming up. Thank you. I, I couldn't find it. Thank you, Alan. So verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, the idea here of seven is the idea of completeness. The, so why would God be, be pictured as having seven spirits? Okay, seven's a number of perfect. Seven is, go back, think about Ezekiel, where you've got these beings who are filled with eyes inside and out. And we didn't read about the spirit that was in. You end up with these wheels, and there's a spirit that's tied to these beings, and these wheels have got eyes everywhere. What's the idea that's being communicated? God sees everything. The idea of a sevenfold spirit of God, God is everywhere. He's not limited as you and I are. I've not mastered the ability of being in more than, in, in more than one place at the same time. I'm not sure I actually want to be able to do that. So the idea is, is that God is everywhere. His spirit is everywhere. He sees everything. You cannot surprise him. You cannot sneak up on him. And so, let me get down here to this. There's seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So the seven lamps are the symbol. What immediately followed the symbol? So what's the symbol in, in verse 5 of chapter 4? Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. What's that? That's the symbol, is the burning lamps. What's the explanation? Which are the seven spirits of God? So the symbol is immediately explained. 
Now, the, again, the idea of the seven spirits of God, God's everywhere. Can't sneak up on him. Can't pull a fast one on him. You thinking of something? Okay, so Sam is, is talking about, uh, you know, is there a correlation between there's, you know, you have the seven spirits of God, but you also had God writing to seven churches, and you have the idea that uh, the Holy Spirit is given to each individual believer as, as, a, as, uh, as an earnest, right, as a pledge of the coming inheritance, and so this goes to every believer, and so is this just another way of, of tying together that the universality, you didn't use that word, I'll throw it in, uh, you know, that, that God is, he's everywhere in everything, he distributes faith to those who he chooses, he distributes gifts to whom he desires. Each one of us is wired a certain way for service. And that is done specifically by the Holy Spirit at his choice. Gunnar, do you have a question? Okay, so Gunnar's making a point that uh, at Pentecost, there were tongues of fire seen coming down on individuals as they were um, those that were believers and uh, that they are becoming, you know, basically a lampstand, um, a bringer of light. So... We're running into symbolism being used to communicate points. We don't need to run wild with the symbolism because again, most of the time, what those symbols represent is either given immediately in the text or we've got enough information previously to be able to pull strings and, and follow threads. Does that make sense? So here's what I wanted to, to really communicate this morning. Do you see the unity and the diversity of God's word? Here we have threads that have been carried forward over centuries. And there's continuity. There's a unity in that. And yet you have some diversity as well because you have different people who are bringing different perspectives. And frankly, what is that? That's progressive revelation. God's not giving it all at one time. And so here you have this emphasis. And remember, when Ezekiel is seeing this about God, what is God wanting to communicate to Ezekiel to have Ezekiel communicate to the exiles? Number one, judgment. Why are you in exile? Because of your sin. Because you've been rebellious. Because you've been stick-necked and obstinate. And yet what is God also communicating through Ezekiel? There's redemption. There's rescue. If you'll repent. And so you have these messages carried forward. It's the same in Daniel. It's the same with Micaiah. It's the same with Isaiah. If you go back and read Isaiah 6, we all remember that, you know, whom shall I send? Send me. 
And what's the next words that God's telling him? I'm sending you this people. You're going to tell them. They're not going to listen to you. And so again, uh, this idea of, of judgment and redemption consistently throughout the scripture. All right, we're seven minutes over now. So let's pray. Father, thank you that history marches to your beat, to your drum, that you are accomplishing your word, you're accomplishing your works, you're working all things after the counsel of your own will, and you, you have everything under control, even sin. You control those things. You limit what we can be confronted with. We'll never experience temptation as Jesus did. We never have to, to eat the whole enchilada as he did. And so, Father, thank you that even in this life, you are so merciful to us and so gracious. You have given us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Father, help us to not be presumptuous. Help us not to be lazy. Help us to be about being transformed into the image of your son. Help us to be humble that as we come to your word, we would look at it um, and look at ourselves with, with clear vision so that we may repent where we need to, that we may turn and that we may be changed. Thank you that someday that change is gonna be complete. It's just partial now. How we long for the day when sin will be no more and we will be able to see you face to face. In Christ's name, amen.